Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, true God and true human. He is one with the Creator. The Word made flesh, our Messiah, Savior of all creation. We believe in one God, who is Holy Spirit, breath of God moving among us, who is one with the Creator, one with the Christ, our Comforter and our Guide, Mentor of all creation. At this time, our I think Mrs. Param is going to take kids out the door to my left. So if that's part, if that's you, out the door to your left. The rest of you can be turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, which is where we will be studying today as we continue in our study in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2, and we will begin, begin with verse 1 today. Before we, we read our text, I would, like to, uh, I would like to read something from, written by Trent Butler from his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. He writes this. He says, I, I will never forget Booker. Although I can't remember his exact name, I was in fifth grade. I drove with my parents by a school on the other side of town. There, everything seemed different. Only black people populated that school. All the teachers, all the parents, all the students were black. And there, among them, stood my friend Booker. He had been the savior of our Little League baseball team. We counted on him to win every game he pitched, and he almost did. No one could hit his fastball, and the pitch they did not want to see was his curveball. When not pitching, he started shortstop, and at the plate, he was the center of our team. That afternoon, it dawned on me that something was wrong. I could play ball all summer with Booker and his other friends. Come fall, we had to say goodbye and go our separate ways and go to our separate educations. This practice eventually led Booker to leave West Texas and live with relatives in New Mexico, where he could go to school wherever he desired. Even later, it dawned on me that Booker was not welcome where I worshipped either. We had a mission for for his kind. As a teenager dedicated to the ministry, I could go and preach in the mission, but I could not invite Booker and his friends to my church. From his birth on, Jesus came with a resounding note that clashed with the culture of his day. He was the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of all people. Whoever believes on him will be saved. Jews far far beyond the fifth grade saw no problem at all in excluding everyone else from salvation. Could not hear Jesus' message about salvation for the entire world. A visit to our churches today makes me wonder how well we have heard the message. Have we excluded from salvation all who do not belong to our social class, our side of town, our race, or our clothing standards? Luke should threaten the church today. It still calls out good news, great joy that will be for all people. Our Father, we come before you this day, and I pray that this word threatens us. It threatens our comfort, and it threatens our complacency, and it calls us to action that we not be people who do not conform to your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, gracious Lord, that we would be people who extend grace as we've studied in Jonah on Wednesdays, Lord, 
Jonah received grace and then was unwilling to extend grace. Lord, have mercy upon us. And I pray, Father God, that you would speak to us through your word. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord, who is Savior of all. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's where I'm going to, uh, where I plan to go today. Let me just give you a quick preview of how I've kind of set forth this text. The first thing I want to deal with, I want to deal with the historical setting of Christ. This is probably the, maybe the most well-known passage of text in all of the Bible. It is the birth of Christ. You all know it. Um, If you've been, gosh, you don't even have to be in church for very long. It is the birth of Christ and the announcements to the shepherds. And so here's what I would, here's what I'm going to attempt. Uh, First of all, I would like to set the birth of Christ in its historical setting. Next, we'll talk just about the birth of Christ. And finally, we'll consider the the angelic announcement regarding the birth of Christ. I I like to ask, why do we need this message? Why does the church today, why does the church on Randall Place need the message of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20? And our need is so that we would recall that the gospel message is one of great joy. It is. It's a message of great joy. We think, oh man, I'm going to have to share the gospel with somebody today, and I'm a little. It is one great joy. It is good news. We also need to recall that the gospel is without prejudice. That is, it is a gospel that is that goes to all. Scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he gave the one and only Son that whoever would be believing in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that is a message that, that, that is true to a person in a penthouse on Wall Street and to a person in a jungle in the middle of Ecuador. It is, the same, it is a true statement for all groups, all classes people. So with that, if you will, I will read our text today, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and then we'll set about looking at this text a little more closely. Verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the, the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. Behold, I bring good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, 
which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for they had heard for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. This is the inerrant word of God. Well, let's talk about the birth of Jesus. And I think what I want to do is, I think Luke gives us two perspectives. Luke is going to give us a heavenly or an earthly perspective of the birth of Jesus, or at least regarding the, the historical events uh, surrounding the birth of Jesus. So there's going to be this earthly historical uh, understanding of the birth of Jesus. But then Luke also uh, shows us that there is a heavenly perspective as well. And so first thing we learn is that the birth of Christ came about during the time of Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. Now, we, we know that this, uh, this, this Caesar, before he was Caesar Augustus, was, uh, was, his name was Octavian. And Octavian... Um, Octavian came and was acknowledged as Caesar Augustus in 27 BC, and he ruled until about 14 AD. Now, the thing about Octavian, or this particular Caesar Augustus, was that he he was actually a pretty good politician, a very capable ruler. And what he did was he really brought peace. He brought about what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He's the one who kind of brought this about. And so he's the one who famously said, I found Rome a city of bricks and I left it a city of marble. And so he was able to, um, through his policies and probably also through great force, was able to uh, bring civil strife to to reduce civil strife to such an area that there began to be great prosperity as well. Because after all, when there is lack of civil strife, you are more likely to to do well in business and do well in trade. For instance, if you know that you are not going to have all of your crops stolen and robbed from you, you are more likely to grow crops. And enough, not only for yourself, but also to sell out on the market. If all you, if you know that somebody's going to come around and, and burn and steal your crops and burn down your house, you might only grow enough for yourself and your family, and even then you might do so secretly. But if you know that, hey, nobody's going to do that to me, you might grow more crops so that you can sell them on the market and increase and uh, enhance your standard of living. And so under... Uh, Augustus Caesar, he did bring about great peace in the Roman Empire. And so it tells us then that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world uh, would be registered. And we should note here that all the world is a bit of hyperbola. I think you can figure that out. It would certainly be the Roman world. Um, People in South America were not under this this decree. But all the world should be registered. Basically, there's a couple reasons why a, a ruler would put forth a, or would call for a census. And the two reasons primarily are number one for military service and number two for taxation. Now, Jews were um, 
not obligated. They were free from military service. So this was for the purpose of taxation. So uh, Caesar Augustus says, okay, I want to count you all. I want to know who's in the kingdom because I want to make sure that you are paying up. I need to know how many of you are out there, and I need to make sure that every single one of you is paying. So that's what this, that's what this taxation was for. Well, that's kind of the earthly, or the, uh, the, the earthly perspective that Luke gives us. But Luke is very, is, is, has this ability to contrast the, the earthly perspective and a, a spiritual or a godly or a heavenly perspective. And I would like to look for just a moment at the biblical perspective. Because Luke now portrays Caesar Augustus as the unknowing agent of God whose decrees fulfill God's purposes. And so Augustus Caesar says, I think I'm going to put forth a tax. I need to count everybody. So I'm going to have everybody return to their hometown. Isn't that interesting? How do you get a poor Jewish man and his betrothed wife out of Nazareth in the northern part of the country to travel 90 miles, dangerous miles, to a town called Bethlehem to fulfill Messianic prophecy. How do you do that? Hmm. God says, I'll just move the Roman Empire. That's not a problem for me. So we actually see the divine sovereign hand of God behind this decree. It says that Caesar Augustus sent forth this decree. Make no mistake that there is a divine hand moving these events. We should not be surprised when we see this. After all, remember when we were studying the book of Daniel. Did you recall how God moved on the, on the life of Nebuchadnezzar and brought Nebuchadnezzar to do exactly what God wanted him to do? Until Nebuchadnezzar repented. Of course, we see this also in the person of Cyrus. In fact, Isaiah, who spoke long before Cyrus was ever born, calls him by name and calls Cyrus my, my anointed. God says, call Cyrus my anointed, my Mashiach. He's my anointed one. And he's going to bring about my very purposes. Cyrus is going to be raised up. And through Cyrus, he's going to send forth a decree to send all of the Jewish people back to their homeland. Through Cyrus, he's going to return the Jewish people out of their captivity and bring them back into their homeland. Oh, God is working marvelously and victoriously through these events. And Luke has this... Luke seems to, to do this, keep, keep track of this, because as we go through Luke, we're going to see how he juxtaposes the ruler of the Roman Empire with the ruler of heaven and earth. Caesar Augustus is not the ruler. He is the ruler of the Roman Empire. Make no mistake, however, Luke is informing us there is another ruler being born, and that is the ruler of the heaven and earth. And we will see that the Pax Romana is just the peace of Rome, but there is a king of peace that is being born in the Roman Empire. And Caesar Augustus is having a role, an unknowing role, in bringing about God's plan that he has put forth ages and centuries earlier. And so we see that the most powerful man in the world is acting out God's promises. That is, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And, he would, and, would, and the Messiah would come about in God's time, and God will move empires to fulfill his word. Make no mistake, God's word is true. 
And you can say, I have no idea how that would come about. That makes no sense how that could happen. Well, God can just move a whole empire and bring about his purpose. That's what he does. So that's kind of a, the historical setting behind the birth of Christ. Let's concern, consider ourse- concern now ourselves with the actual birth of Christ. I love how simple this is. But we will note that in verse 4 it says, And Joseph went up from Galilee to from the, the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David. And so now we see this broad decree of Caesar Augustus put forth this broad decree of everybody having to move to, uh, to their uh, the place of their birth, or their place of their ancestry. And now the, the camera angle narrows onto this one family. There is a focus on this one family. And it's important to understand that this family is of the lineage of David, for it is from David that will come forth the Messiah. We should not miss the regal connections. That the, that the, the child that Mary is bearing is truly a king. And I love the, the very brief and simple description of his birth. And while they were there, the time came forth for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it. Simple and brief. Paul tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth a son born of a woman born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. And the fullness of time had come. Remember, way back, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, and you will bruise him on the heel, and he will bruise you on the head. So way back in Genesis chapter 3, the first promise, we call it the proto-evangelism, the very first promise of a Savior was, was given. It was spoken to the serpent, said that there will be conflict between your seed and her seed. And there will always be conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But, the seed of the woman will come forth, which of course is an interesting phrase, seed of the woman. Think about that for a moment. And, um, and through him, he will destroy the works of the enemy. And so in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And he sent forth his son through this woman, Mary. And now I'm going to tread on some fairly dangerous ground because I think I'm going to uh, tip over some sacred cows. Sorry. Notice this. It says that while they were there, the time came forth for her to give birth. This just does not match my understanding or my traditional understanding of the birth of Christ. I thought when they came into town, there was this frantic search for a place for them to stay, and they go knocking on everybody's door, and they keep getting turned away, and there's nowhere for them to stay. That's just not in the text anywhere. Did you ever notice that? Nowhere. It just says, well, they were there. That, to me, you can have a different view. It seems, then, that they were already there. While they were there, 
thought they did. It's not that Mary was in labor and they're rushing into town trying to find a place to stay. That is nowhere in the text. While they were there, the time came forth and she gave birth to her son. It implies that they've been in Bethlehem for some unspecified period of time. Maybe a day, maybe a few hours, maybe a week. I don't know. But there is no frantic search for a place for Mary. She's not in labor. It doesn't appear. And she gave birth and she wrapped her son in cloths, which is typical uh, garb for a, very, for a poor family. And I think that this is going to be important when we get to the shepherds. So keep that in mind. And she placed him in a manger, which is basically just a feeding trough. Um, it may have been elevated. It may have actually been a hole dug in the ground where they put hay and uh, the animals could eat. Placed them in a manger. And the reason why was because there was no room in the end. And I'm going to tip this cow, sorry. Here's what I want to know. Where did we get the idea of a rude innkeeper turning people away? Do you see it in the text? It is nowhere. It is not in this text and it is not in Matthew. The text says nothing of a rude innkeeper turning away a pregnant woman. Which, by the way, those who have, have uh, grew up in, in, in a Middle Eastern culture, grew up in the Middle East, this would never, ever in a million years happen. Are you kidding me? A pregnant woman shows up at your door. Middle Eastern hospitality. Have you ever experienced Middle Eastern hospitality? Oh my goodness. Anyway. Beyond compare. No way in a million years would a pregnant woman ever, especially one who was in labor, if that were the case, be turned away. Of course she would be brought in. And there was no room in the inn. So here's what I would like us to do. I would like us just to do good biblical exegesis. I'm not saying this, well, let's just do good biblical exegesis. And and exegesis just simply means when we exegete the text, all we're doing is we're drawing out the meaning. We do not want to put the meaning into the text. We just read the text and say it for what it is. And then we draw out the meaning and then we come to a conclusion. Let's exegete the text. And it says, because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, as I said, the text says nothing about a rooting keeper turning away a pregnant woman. But let's also look at this word inn. It is the Greek word katalima. And Luke uses this word another time. And here's how he uses it. In Luke chapter 22, verse 11. Luke uses it twice. Mark uses it once. Both Mark and Luke use it in in the exact same way. But this is how Luke uses it. Luke 22, 11. You know the parable. And Oh, I'll start with 10. And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Where is the katalima? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. It's a guest room. Mark uses the, te- the, the word the exact same way. Now, let's look at Luke 10.34.
you know this parable, parable of the, uh, the Good Samaritan. It says, he, that is the Good Samaritan, went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. This is a completely different word. Word Pandacheon is, is the idea here. So here's where I'm getting. Catalina is a guest room. Pandacheon is a hotel. This is how Luke uses the terms. So, conclude with this little rant. I would say, most likely, the inn in Luke refers to a guest room in a private home. And it was not uncommon. Let's go to the next slide. It is not uncommon. Sorry if that didn't show up too, too well. But here's a typical schematic of a Palestinian home in the first century. And you can see way over on the left side, you probably can't see that too well, but here it is. Way over on the left side is a stable. It is an animal shelter where you would bring the animals in at night because it was cold or predators. Then, that middle one is the family room. And then way on the right is the guest room called a catalima. You can see my little Lego thing here um, in 3D. So most likely the inn refers to a a room in a private home. And it was not uncommon to have an animal room that was attached to a Palestinian home. And there would be a low wall separating the stable from the family room. And oftentimes the animal then could eat from a manger, a feeding trough. So, and here's another reason why I think that Jesus was born in a home, not in a cave or in a barn. The other reason is, think about this, when the, when the shepherds came, and I know shepherds were not well-renowned people, but they still were hospitable people, and they show up to a place and they see a newborn baby and a new mother in a stable, and they're going to just leave? Once again, appealing to Middle Eastern hospitality, certainly somebody would have said, listen, i got a better place. You're in a stable? Come to my house. i got a little bit of room. I don't have much. It's crowded, but i got something for you. There's no way that all of the shepherds just come in and see this new mom and her newborn baby and say, well, I'm glad you're in a stable. Have a nice day. So, Here's my, my summary. My summary is this, that of this particular section. Jesus was born in a humble manner. He was rich but became poor for our sakes. Now, here's the point. You say, well, does this have any theological implications? No, the theology is basically the same. I brought this up because here's what I want us to be aware of. Sometimes we are so influenced by our tradition and by uh, what has been taught us that we never stop and bother and take a look at what does the text say. I want us to be good exegetes of scripture. And just because we've been taught something, let's go back and look at the text and say, what does it really say? Not simply, what has tradition, by the way, this came uh, the first time we ever really see this tradition of being born in the cave. Um, Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, we see that written in the, the, early, the mid-2nd century or so. 
We also see it in an apocryphal book called the, the book of James. It wasn't written by James. It was written about 200 A.D., um, where a lot of these ideas actually come forth. So they come forth from uh, mid-2nd century to late-2nd century writings is where all of these traditions seem to arise. But they do not arise from the text. There is no, in, there is no root innkeeper. He's not anywhere. And I think if we do a, a faithful job of a word study and we come to Catalima, we will see that it is a guest room. That's how it's translated by Luke anyways. I suppose it could be used in a different way, but Luke uses it as a guest room. And he contrasts it with an inn. He has two different words for these two different places. So I guess what I'm calling us to do is to be good exegetes of Scripture. I'm calling us to be good students of Scripture, to read the text, to draw out its meaning, and then from there we arrive at our conclusion. So I brought all of that up, not because there are any great theological differences, and if we've been believing the traditional Christmas story for years and years, that somehow somehow we, we were heretics in believing that, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, folks, I want us to study God's Word carefully and not read our own understanding into it, but let the text speak to us and then come to our understanding. And if you disagree with me, you are free to disagree with me on this one, and we can still be brothers and sisters in the Lord. Even though I'm right. (laughs) All right, so now that we've tipped that sacred cow... Let's come to one of my favorite passages of text. And I, I love this issue with the, the, the shepherds. The angelic announcement to the shepherds. You've you got to remember that shepherds were, well, they were not people of great esteem. People uh, looked down upon shepherds. They were not honored amongst society. They were, well, they were scum. In fact, a shepherd could not uh, bear testimony in court. Their testimony was not admissible because they were such horrible people. So contrast that, however, with God's understanding of shepherds, because you'll recall many, many years earlier, there was uh, a shepherd wandering around the deserts of Midian, and he saw this bush on fire, and it wasn't being consumed, and he went to go check it out, and God spoke to him and said, Moses, you're my guy. I am who I am. Now go and set my people free and I will be with you. Yeah, Moses was a shepherd. And then you recall, of course, King David was a shepherd. And Amos was a shepherd. And oh, in Ezekiel, God says, I'm a shepherd. God seems to have a pretty high view of shepherds. Though in this day and age, shepherds had bad reputations. Perhaps maybe there was some, I'm sure there was some, some logical reasoning behind their their reputation, but nevertheless, had bad reputations. And anyways, so in the same region, there are these shepherds, and they're out in the field, and they're keeping watch over their flock by night. And here's the crazy thing. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were all filled with great fear. Of course they're filled with great fear. You're out minding your own business late at night, and a little something moves in the bush. You're scared. When all of a sudden an angel shows up, it's like, oh, That's really frightening. Let's not forget that perhaps these shepherds really weren't great people. Maybe they knew that they were not so righteous before God. And God shows up 
oh yeah, you're going to be afraid. Or at least the messenger of God shows up. So the first word is, do not fear. In other words, I have not come for the purpose of destruction. I have come for the purpose of life. I have not come for war. I have come to declare peace. Do not be afraid. And here is the word of testimony. I am bringing you good news. This is the word where we get, it is euangelion, where we get our word evangelism or evangel. It is the good news. I bring you the gospel. And it is one of great joy and it is for all people. Well, I think they could probably accept that. Most people could say, yep, here comes the gospel, here comes the good news, and it is for all people. And I just, this next verse, it's underlined in my Bible, and it says this, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Here it is, verse 11, for unto you is born a Savior. Unto you. Yeah, it's for... The good news is for all people. That's in general. Now, here's what I want you to know, shepherds. For you, a Savior has come. What a great word. The shunned and the outcast are specifically included. It's not just for the spiritual elite. It's not just for those who live in comfortable homes. It's not just those who are born of privilege. It's not just those who, who've got it all together. No, to you. You scum of the earth, basically, is what's going on. We're just the scum of the earth. And you're telling me that the gospel is for me and you came? God has been silent for 400 years and He's spoken to a few people. He's spoken to Zechariah. He's spoken to Mary. He's spoken to Joseph. And now He's speaking to shepherds. For to you, a Savior is born. This just reminds me, we've all heard of the sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. But read back the last verses of chapter 4. It's amazing. Because Jesus goes up on this hill, right? And, and think of who's all on the hill. It says all sorts of... It's a melting pot. You have Gentiles and you have sinners and you have Pharisees and Sadducees. You've got religious... You've got everybody up on that hill. You've got people who have all their lives have been told that they are spiritual nothings. You Syrians, you Gentiles, you have no claim on heaven. You have no place in the presence of God. That's what they've been told all their lives. And every sermon deserves a good, requires a good hook. Right? That's my little story that I said at the beginning, right, to get you in. Let me tell you, I taught a preaching class. This is the greatest hook ever, ever. Jesus on this hill with all these spiritual zeros. And he opens his mouth and said, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, you spiritual nothings. God's gates have opened wide. And I can tell you right now that every jaw hit the dirt. If you want a hook, that is the greatest hook ever. That got everybody's attention. Because those who have been told they have no claim upon heaven have just been told by Jesus that the gates of heaven are open to them and every Pharisee and Sadducee and religious elite, elitist who have been holding God as their own personal possession have just been told that all of those around them, all of those unclean people are, are 
going to be part of God's kingdom. Let me tell you, whether you agreed with that statement or you disagreed with that statement, you listened to the rest of that sermon. And this is what's happening. An angel shows up and says, For unto you, shepherds, a Savior is born. This tells us a couple of things. It tells us, first of all, something about Jesus. It tells us this gift is described. Number one, it tells us that Jesus came to save. In fact, the title of this whole series is called To Seek and to Save the Lost, which came out of the words of, which as a quote from Jesus, the, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so the first thing we learn is about this idea of who is being born in this manger is that he has come to save. But it also tells us something else. It tells us about who Jesus is, but it also tells us something about mankind. And it tells us that mankind needs a Savior. Jesus is a Savior, and man needs a Savior. And this is our greatest need. Our greatest need is not the fact that we have the divine spark dwelling in us and that over the centuries we've lost the divine spark or somehow our problem is that we don't think highly enough of ourselves, or we have low self-esteem or any of those things. That is not our greatest need. Our greatest need is that we need a Savior. Uh, One of our greatest problems is when we say, I don't need a Savior, but I can work this out on my my own. I'm a good person. I can figure this out. Me and God got this thing worked out, and I know how I'm going to get into heaven, and I know that God will like me because I'm not as bad as my neighbor, blah, 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 and all of that. The problem is, is you need a Savior. Let me tell you something. God did not move the Roman Empire. Because you could figure it out yourself. He did not need to move an empire to bring about his, his Messiah if you could figure it out all by yourself. No, God moved heaven and earth because you needed a Savior. Because I needed a Savior. Because I was lost in my sin. And I had no, not only was I lost, I didn't even know I was lost. I thought I was going in the right direction. And God says, man, you need to say, you're lost, really? I don't think so. I think this path is taking me right where I want to go. Oh, no. It's taking you straight to hell. Oh. Really? Yeah. Born to you, you shepherds, a Savior is born. That's right. People who may have been saying that you have no claim upon God, I'm telling you right now, you're the first to hear it. Savior has been born. We also learn then that he is Christ, that is the the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who fulfills all Old Testament prophecy, and we see that he is Christ the Lord. That is, it is Christ who is Lord, not Caesar Augustus. The one who rules over all is not the guy in Rome. It is the baby lying in the feeding trough. Wow, that is good news. That's really good news. I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel. There it is. And then he says, and I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign is this. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. Why do the shepherds need a sign? Well, think about shepherds. Imagine at this point they've got to be thinking, well, if a Savior is born to us, certainly he must be born in a place of uh, of renown, maybe a place of comfort. He must be born in a place of wealth. And you know what? A bunch of shepherds show up at the door of a wealthy individual. We're probably not getting in. I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to find a baby lying in a manger and he's going to be wrapped in cloths. In other words, he's going to look just like one of yours. He looks just like your sons and daughters. He identifies with you. 
he became poor and he identified with you shepherds and he looks just like your children look. Really? So we're going to show up. We're not going to get kicked out. You're not going to get kicked out because he's one of you. You're his people. You'll fit in well. Folks, we need to recognize that Jesus identified with the lowly. Luke is big on this. And then we see another song. And I told you that the book of Luke, the first two chapters, has five songs. I need to, to revise that. I think there are six songs. Here's one that I missed. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is well pleased. I missed that song. There's an angelic song. The heavenly host, oftentimes the heavenly host is associated with those who fight for God, the angelic beings who fight for God. But here they are not declaring war, they are declaring peace. And so they are declaring a peace, not an earthly peace like the Pax Romana brought about by Roman fiat. They are not even talking about peace in, in regards to the cessation of conflict among rivals. Rather, they are talking about a peace between men and God. The war, God is declaring the war is over. Rebels will be forgiven. Rebels will become children, and children will become inheritors. The war is over. Lay down your arms. It's time to stop fighting. And then we see the shepherds head off. And they become perhaps the first evangelist. I find it interesting. Don't, don't you find it interesting that the, the first ones who come and hear the gospel and then go announce are shepherds and the first ones who announce the resurrection in Luke are women. Once again, I told you Luke's really concerned with the outcasts. Luke makes sure that these are people who proclaim God's truth. And they're Remember, their testimony would not have been admissible in a human court, but they were entrusted by God to share this, to share what they had experienced. And you have to admit that their story had to be somewhat unbelievable. And yet they had no problem with it. I mean, really, yeah, so we just show, some shepherds show up at your door. Yeah, we're out in the field. And the angels show up and the songs start happening and all these crazy things. And so here we are. It's like, yeah, really? Many things we could say about our shepherds and their unbelievable story. But the fact is that they related it without embarrassment or without hesitancy or without just amazing. Here, God showed up. This is what happened. Mary pondered these things, and then the, the craziest thing happens. The shepherds return back to their fields. Says they did go on a book tour or get, you know, some sort of, you know, didn't become a YouTube star or anything like that. They just went back to work. I love that. I think, what a great evangelistic strategy that is. That is, we hear the message and then we go back to work and we declare the message where we are. God, sometimes we live in this culture and this society, especially in, in America, where everything has to be big and it has to be spectacular and we need it to be showy. And I, like I said, I, I still need a fog machine. One of these days we'll get a fog machine. Lights. And I'm still pushing for my 
retractable roof. But we need the spectacular in God's life. And so, so often we think that if I'm going to be of any benefit to God, I need to, it needs to be exciting and flashy and, and big. It's got to be huge. The shepherds went back to their fields. And they began to tell, and they told people of all the things that are going on. God doesn't always call us to the spectacular. There's a few people who are called to great, big, huge ministries. Praise God. But most of the time, most of us are going, most of us are never going to be invited to big conferences for some, be the keynote speaker, and we are not invited on big stages or anything like that. Because he sends us back into the routine to declare his praise. Because wherever you live and wherever you work and wherever you play, those people need the gospel. The people in your neighborhood need the gospel. And the people in your workplace need the gospel. And the people on your board meeting need the gospel. And the people, and all of these people, and they don't need somebody from the radio or the television or the internet preaching to them. They need a friend whom they, who will sit by them and walk with them and put their arm around them in difficult times and share the gospel with them. Yeah, it's not particularly flashy. It's not fancy. You will probably never get a book deal and nobody will invite you to their conference. And God has called you. Go back to your place and share the gospel. Your neighborhood needs the gospel. Your neighbor needs the gospel. Your family needs the gospel. Your co-workers need the gospel. And you don't have to be spectacular. You just need to share the gospel. I'll close with this. As we have seen, the gospel is a source of great joy. And it truly is. It is, it is good news. Gospel simply means good news. It is good news. To you is born a Savior. Your greatest need is that you need a Savior. And your greatest need has been met. John Newton, uh, of course, the individual who wrote Amazing Grace, who, of course, was a slave trader, famously stated this, I am a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior. At the end of his life, he said, I know two things. Two things. I'm a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior. For unto you today a Savior is born. For unto you today the gospel is here. If you would like to find life in the name of Christ and have your sins forgiven and have the war and enmity between you and God cease today the day and now is the acceptable time. We need a Savior. Jesus is that great Savior. You cannot save yourself. Otherwise God does not move the Roman Empire to bring about his Messiah. If you could do it on your own, you wouldn't need Jesus, but you have Jesus. And I guess my final point. This is good news. This is really good news. I Today, I bring you good news of great joy. Let's stand and let's sing about our great and awesome God.